how do you feel about the transition? I mean, you do you feel uh, like it's a it's a big step up, or do you think some of the duties you've taken on at UO have well prepared you for that transition at this point? Well, that's a that's an excellent question. I'm going to miss so much about the University of Oregon. It's where I have learned so much, and I would attribute so much of that to my students who are remarkable. And I'm sure you recall that um, from your experience there. I wasn't actually actively searching for a, the, I have to move up. I have to ascend the ladder. My father actually was a college president at a fairly young age. And so his, he kept, keeps telling me, you have to do this and then you become a dean and then you become a provost. And that's that was never really my aspiration. I'm much more interested in engaging intellectual issues, urban issues, theoretical issues, uh, more on the ground. Um, but I got a call from a search firm as I'm walking to work here in Portland. I walk every day 4.2 miles each way. And they um, told me about this opportunity. They, UNC Charlotte is a, is a they claim that they're an urban research university and they also are interested in providing access for first-generation college students. And I thought that was a really, really beautiful pairing and actually seems like an extension of what I've been trying to do here, um, which is engage students in urban issues and architectural issues that um, are not necessarily... um, the, the standard, like thinking about issues of equity in deep ways, working with economists um, to think through different models of, of valuation and how that influences uh, architectural design and architectural thinking. So it's, it feels sort of like a natural to me to be making this step. Um, and then the other thing I would say, a, a wonderful parallel is that, as you recall, the School of Architecture and Allied Arts at U of O had um, this wonderful constellation of disciplines, art, product design, historic preservation, landscape architecture, planning, public policy, and management architecture, and down the line. And I see this amazing grouping of disciplines at UNC Charlotte as well. It's architecture and urban design, but also theater, dance, music, and art. uh, and I, I just can't wait. But I don't quite remember your your own architectural or educational upbringing. What what what's the previous few steps prior to UO? I know I remember you worked a brief bit in Germany, but I can't remember the the educational steps uh, that you took prior. Sure. Well, I actually just to go way back. I grew up in uh, Vermont. And my father was a professor of history at the University of Vermont. My mother was an archivist and curator at um, the she- this wonderful institution called the Shelburne Museum. And so I went off to Brown as an undergraduate thinking I would study art history and history, which I did. Um, and then in my sophomore year, I took a course in environmental studies, which blew my mind. Um, I loved history. But the courses that I took usually centered humans as the activists, mostly white male humans, as the kind of the, the people who did things. And it made me realize that the environment had this shaping force on everything. Um, and I continued to pursue that. Um, at Brown, you could 
take classes at the Rhode Island School of Design. And so I took architecture and landscape architecture courses, and that cemented my interest in design and also the relationship between environmental studies and design. Um, and then I actually went to U of O for my graduate studies. That cemented my faith in public institutions. It was an ex extraordinary educational experience. And from there, I went to Banish and Partner in Stuttgart for four years, worked on the Dutch Institute for Forestry and Nature Research, which was a European Union pilot project for environmentally and human-friendly building, and then pra practiced in the States for a few years before coming to teach at U of O. I knew, I knew when I was in grad school that I wanted to teach. It just felt like this privileged, incredible place to engage ideas and people with talent. And that's proven true, you know, again and again and again. And how's your, how's your, um, let me put it in context. So for me, for instance, uh, between undergrad, grad and PhD, there were certain words um, within the broader discourse of architecture that suddenly emerged. For instance, something like mixed use. Um, I don't think it was ever a term I either paid attention to or was ever really mentioned with a degree of rigor um, in, in both my undergraduate and graduate studies, but only in PhD um, was did, did it suddenly hit a, an interesting kind of momentum within how architecture was being discussed. For you, being the ecological sustainability sort of focus, how has that shifted? How, how do you sort of trace the path that those terms or those realms of discussion how have they evolved over the past i don't know since since your undergraduate onward that's a great question you know um i worked at the energy studies and buildings lab at u of o um, from 1989 to 1992 and we were doing a lot of um, consulting doing energy performance runs for the future eugene public library or whatever it might be and then went on, as I mentioned, to work at Banish and Partner and work on this um, project that was ostensibly a model for environmentally friendly building. I don't even know if the S word existed then, or it certainly didn't have the prominence that it has now. So it was interesting to see that that word come into being and galvanize thinking. Um, and, and of course, today, resilience is a term which maybe is more fitting for what we're trying to ac accomplish. You know, sustainability suggests that you're attempting to preserve something, and there are many things that we want to preserve, but there are a lot of things that we probably don't want to. <laughs> um, and what I find particularly exciting, especially since coming to Portland, has been thinking about resilience as a means by which you can link goals of sustainability and goals of equity. You know, so I've come at it from an environmental studies point of view, as I mentioned, I'm thinking about ecology, working with urban ecologists, thinking that cities could actually be places of environmental, um, you know, they could be thriving environmental settings, not just places of centers of politics and entertainment and religion and economics, but places that could actually accommodate non-humans. Um, but what I've come to realize in Portland is that many of the things that the city, with very great intentions, led uh, in terms of urban planning and transportation infrastructure that 
created this reputation of Portland being the, the greenest city in the United States actually led to some displacement of uh, underprivileged populations. Um, so pop, suddenly Portland is very popular. People are moving in. They have means. They're attracted to these historic neighborhoods. And many ethnic minority populations are displaced. So in the act of creating a green city, we actually created a city that was less inclusive. And I find that really problematic. So maybe resilience is a means by which, again, we could think about making cities that are healthy, not just for those with affluence, but for all members of the population. What's your take on um, Hillsborough? Again, to frame it in context, the, the, um, there, there's two sort of um, strategies, it seems like, that are outlined for maintaining some zone of wilderness. One is the, the sort of urban growth boundary that's very common within Oregon, right? And then there's another one, I forget what the, uh, I think it's called the Green Belt, but it's a strategy adopted in Seoul in South Korea. Um, and in both cases, what they witness is um, not only the displacement that you're talking about in terms of demographics, but the displacement of suburbia in the sense of in Portland, you have something that fits a very Jane Jacobsian sort of model, right, in terms of the, the development and, and the grain of the city. But then you drive 30 minutes to the west and you encounter one of the most repetitive models of suburbia. Um, and I guess in Seoul and South Korea, there's something similar. Um, what, what's your what's your take on that? I mean, given the given the equity thing that you're discussing, it seems like there may also be some gaps in terms of the the developmental model, just on a urban morphology level. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's really interesting about your question is I've become friends with a guy named Dave McElnay, David who worked for Jean Nouvel for many years and is now the chief urban designer for Hillsborough. And he, he, his, his quote is that we need to convert a suburb into a city, you know, that the population influx is great, but you have this model of um, low density development. Um, I think getting more at the center of your question, I, I really do believe urban growth boundaries are, make a lot of sense. Um, but they bring with it a series of problems, incl including um, increased uh, costs for housing. And so you have to think about economic models, whether they're community investment trusts or other models, where you can ensure that people who aren't displaced. Um, I work with an economist at Reed College, Noelle Ott-Netasil. She's amazing. She's trying to link issues of equity and green infrastructure, and her her feeling about gentrification is you don't want to not make places better. Um, you want to make them better. And then if people don't have the uh, ability to afford rent, you subsidize their ability to afford rent. And this is, again, a much larger social question of our commitment to ensuring that all members of our society have access to, to basic needs and, and opportunities. But I think this urban growth uh, boundary model and a green belt model. There's some kind of combination that I think could make a lot of sense. And, you know, one thing I would say is there's going to be more and more and more and more pressure on urban and suburban space. 
and we expect more function out of a limited acreage. Um, so let me give you an example. The state of Oregon uh, Department of Environmental Quality is um, requiring more on-site stormwater management, uh, preferably through biological means, so rain gardens, green roofs, inflow planters, bioswales. Um, so they, they expect more of that, and if you can't treat it on-site, then they have requirements for rates of release of that water. We want to slow, decelerate that water so it's not creating problems downstream. At the same time, a city like Hillsboro or Gresham, uh, these growing cities surrounding Portland, um, have uh, increased density requirements or goals, I should say, for um, density so as to meet uh, transit-oriented development goals and affordability goals. So you have this perfect storm of incompatibility. On the one hand, we want more porous surfaces on any individual site. On the other hand, you want greater densities on that site. And that's an enormous challenge. But again, I think that's where the designer comes in, that we can think in terms of this three-dimensional puzzle, in terms of increasing surface area. Like that's our job, is to try to pack more function into increasingly limited space. And on the one hand, it's daunting and a little bit scary. On the other hand, I think it's tremendously exciting. So before the, the S word, as you put it, I, I like that term, before the S word arrived in, in, in terms of day-to-day -day, um, architectural jargon, were you having these kind of discussions given that you're coming from an environmental science background? You know, I think I studied environmental studies, was trying to be mindful of a bigger picture, then went and studied architecture, and there was so much to learn about designing buildings and just basic site planning um, in terms of construction and tectonics and mechanical systems and circulation and like a, a lyricism of circulation and what makes sense and what is architecturally meaningful and making facades. And, and so then we layer this S word. And back then, I think it was largely about energy performance, which is incredibly important, um, thinking about energy conservation and uh, the, the skins of buildings. But the environment dis discourse when I was in architecture school was largely confined to the building proper, its envelope, and its internal workings. And there was less attention being paid to the manner in which what I design is responding to and responsive toward a surrounding condition. And so I, I've really, one thing I've appreciated is this evolution in thinking where we're not only thinking about energy, again, incredibly important, but we're thinking about life cycle analysis and um, we're thinking about the health of building materials. And I, I think we're moving to a, a more relational uh, approach where we view in any individual building project as a node within a larger network and we have, have to be responsive to that network and it, and being aware of it is going to enable us to make vastly better decisions at the site scale. Did you find um, when you did the transition between environmental studies, environmental studies or science? It was environmental studies, and you could. There was a track. There was one that was science focused, and one that was more humanities. And I actually 
chose the more humanities approach, which is not to say I don't value the input of natural scientists and other scientists. When you transitioned um, or were doing in parallel the environmental studies and, and architecture, did you see a gap um, between how architects talked about the environment versus environmental studies folks talked about the environment? I, I think so. And again, I think the tradition of architectural education is to be obsessed with the object of the building. And trust me, I I stare at guardrail details all the time. I think they're really interesting. And I care about that. Um, but of course, um, environmental studies, the, the discourse was much more about the landscape. And to be honest with you, back then, uh, environmental studies was more a study of, of rural conditions. And another, I think, significant evolution that's taken place in the last 30 years is that we understand now that the city is central to the future of environmental quality. And so there are people studying urban ecology. I don't know if that that was even a term 25 years ago, was it? Maybe. Um, the idea of novel ecosystems that people have developed, ecologists have developed, to look at constructed environments and their relationship to quote-unquote natural conditions or organic conditions. And there's this co-creation of ecosystems that's taking place that is in most cases unintentional and problematic, but if we actually were very intentional about it, maybe we could create spaces for our well-being and that of non-human beings as well. How, how um, so Oregon is this odd thing, right? That you feel like you're in a, a pocket in a way, or there's this worry that you may be in a discursive pocket. I, I, I've had similar experiences in, so I did undergrad in Southeast, grad school in the Northeast, and then PhD in the Northwest, right? And each time it was strange to me, um, and I had mentioned this in a previous discussion too, that the the odd thing was in each place we were taught what was um, spoken of as the architectural discourse, like the, the 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 full robust architectural discourse. But each sort of pocket within the United States had their own authors that they tended to reference had their own sort of pockets of literature that they relied upon more heavily than others and the strange one was there wasn't so many commonalities like the authors referenced in the pacific northwest were very different than the authors referenced in the new england area um in terms of you're, you're obviously attending conferences you're writing um and now you're about to to jump to the to other other side of the country how do you find the things that you're studying and the things that you're talking about right now? Um, how do you find they work within broader discussions? That's a wonderful question, born of your experience. Um, you know, the, I, I like to think that the University of Oregon, the culture, not necessarily the region, but the culture of the department and the institution is less dogmatic than others. You know, there's some architecture programs that are led by some really well-known and highly influential figures who are deep thinkers and should have the kind of influence that they do, but there's more of a 
uh, buy-in toward that. Um, and I've always felt like it was okay that different people in our faculty had different attitudes about what was good, constituted good architecture. But your question makes me think a little bit differently about that. Um, I do go, and I was just talking about, you know, the idea of, my interest is a party for a building, the, the basic conceptual diagram, is actually incomplete unless it represents landscape, even if it's densely urban and water, um, which is my current obsession in architecture. And so this idea that, that a work, a, your intervention is a pairing of something you create and something that exists already that can influence it and your work can influence it. I, I, one thing I sense when I go to conferences is, again, there remains this, the, 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 the kind of bookending it at the, at the envelope of the building. And so I do find some resistance or some lack of understanding of what I'm trying to do when I start to talk about this idea that buildings are, you know, ecologies within larger ecologies. It's the whole idea of nested systems, which I think people intuitively understand, but that's just not the nature of the way that they teach architecture or think about architecture. And is this what opens up collaboration for you? I think so. You know, and I'm, a, I'm one thing, like you mentioned, there are these cultural differences and in some ways they're profound. And um, I think in many ways, UNC Charlotte, I'm sympathetic to what they're doing, and I think they are to what I'm doing, but they're differences. They're, uh, to be frank, they're much more digitally savvy in terms of building information technology, and I would love to think about how the work that I do could plug into that kind of work. Um, so I think there are incredible opportunities when you have these different cultures that might be speaking slightly different languages and as you mentioned um, accessing different resources what happens when you start to you know push those things together I'm looking at this as a growth opportunity to be sure and and in terms of collaboration too you mentioned an economist you mentioned an urban uh, designer urban planner um, and an urban ecologist was it was a third one but is there what are the pockets of um, collaboration that you see being repeated uh, in your own research? Um, this studio I taught in the spring, uh, and it, it was with Noelle Netasil, this economist at Reed, and her students um, produced these briefs, these synopses of these emerging economics models that evaluate differently in terms of equity and sustainability. And my students ran with that um, and then offered up some quick visuals as to what the urban design and architectural design implications uh, are of these new modes of eva evaluation. And it, I thought this would be a great node interconnection. It would have some influence on the design studio. It wouldn't have this massive influence. It ended up having a massive influence. So. Um, I work with, as, as you asked, uh, urban ecologists, economists, and the like, and what I've found is it gets way more complicated, and I need to put a lot more effort up front into the studio um, so that students aren't blown away with, their heads don't explode with the 
different kinds of inputs that they're receiving. I assemble resources, do produce a annotated bibliography, assign research teams in the first week, and then we come together. Um, and so it's it's very complex, but I have faith in the intelligence of my students, and if I can facilitate a process and provide them resources in a timely manner, I think they're able to arrive at studio outcomes, design outcomes that are are significant. And we've had a lot of luck the last two years. Uh, student teams of mine have won uh, AIA Committee on the Environment Awards. I think two years ago there were 10 awards and over a thousand student participants. So I think it's having some, some kind of impact. Um, I have to tell you, uh, I thought this was peripheral to my world when it was first offered up to me, but I, I worked with an artist named Michael Singer, uh, Michael Singer Studio. He's based in Vermont, um, and he had a fine arts background, shows in the Guggenheim. Um, but then over time, he got involved in community uh, workshops, infrastructure planning, public works, and the like. And so he last year introduced me to these cultural anthropologists at Oxford and King's College in, in England who work with these scientists uh, in Tanzania and at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta who do um, research on mosquitoes and insect-borne diseases. And in, in Tanzania, this Ifakar Health Institute, they have these research facilities where they have these large netted enclosures where they study the behavior of pathogen carrying mosquitoes. And they're in the midst of these communities and they, people living in these communities have don't understand the science and they have a lot of anxiety about it. Um, so the scientists are great at the science and really bad at community engagement. So we ran a studio this past fall in a workshop associated with it where, um, we, did, we redesigned the mosquito research facility in such a way that there was a strong community education component to it, even providing services such as drop-in clinics and other things so it would be perceived as a community asset instead of this something to be really scared of. Um, and we hosted this workshop. We had folks from Tanzania and the UK and the CDC, other institutions in the US, Michael Singer Studio. Institute for Health in the Built Environment at U of O. And it was amazing, amazing. And the uh, Michael Benedict, his, the Mark Benedict, excuse me, he's a malaria expert at the CDC in Atlanta. At the beginning, he said, I don't know what a design shred is. And at the end, he said, I've been doing mosquito research for 40 years, and I've never seen anything like this. And it just makes you realize if you can, the power of design thinking, if you can set up a process and figure out a way for people with speaking different disciplinary languages to figure out a mechanism in a short amount of time by which people can begin to understand one another's languages, I think that's where some profound innovation can take place. And this thing is exploding in terms of funding and subsequent workshops and a goal of producing prototype, um, not only research facilities, but uh, improved housing for people living in, um, you know, really disadvantaged conditions in sub-Saharan African nations. What do you see as the the leap uh, in terms of um, 
the the designer, the architect, the urbanist, what have you, what what's the gear that has to shift uh, or that does shift to be able to support that kind of collaboration? You know, it's hard because the demands, as you know, on producing architecture are so great and there are already people that are hopefully have wonderful collaborators that you're excited to work with and you need an engineer and structural engineer, mechanical engineer, landscape architect, civil engineer, potentially a lighting consultant, maybe even a kitchen consultant, interior designer, and on and on and on. I would just ask that for a given project, this is something I've learned from Michael Singer, the artist, what's the what may constitute the best team? And you may need all those people, but if you can bring other people in, um, not just halfway through to consult, but in a substantive way at the big conceptual phases of the process, um, re that's when innovation can occur. So trying to figure out on the fly people who you might not ordinarily work with, and again, I would say urban ecologists, environmental engineers, water specialists who do phenomenal things. Um, if you can figure out how to bring them in in an efficient way at the beginning, um, I, that's when you can start to crack the nut and evolve the profession. So we're doing I, what I would believe, what I would consider to be more responsive work that is addressing the needs of contemporary urban realities, climate change, you know, rapid urbanization, water scarcities, uh, air quality issues, et cetera, et cetera. My, my wife was, uh, um, studied, um, for a brief while at RISD and, uh, we were working with a fellow by the name of Joe Haskett, who I think was, had some sort of role in the, I think it was called Nessie, New England Sustainable Environmental Association or something of this sort. Um, but he, I remember he mentioned Singer as being a very interesting fellow to look at. Um, and I think the, the, one of the projects he mentioned was an infrastructural work where he made some interesting moves by relieving columns in order to alleviate certain stresses. And because he did that, he was able to mobilize some other strategies in other areas. Um, but Singer, to me, it seems like that model of a person seems quite intriguing in the sense that in other professions there's um and in other domains of scholarship there's a bit of trepidation fear over getting your hands on the authorship of the building the built world but it seems like a person like singer is in a great situation where they're on the one hand not bogged down by the weight of um the sort of traditional architectural model uh, in terms of education, Singer is, wasn't educated as an architect, right? That's correct. And, and he taught architecture at MIT with no prior architectural <laughs> practice. It's amazing. I mean, it's fascinating because that would be the person who then, let me ask this directly, d does he have a different approach to authorship than what you see is commonplace within architecture that allows him to open up the collaborative pool in a different way i think yes i mean he he's very proud of the work that he's taken part in so he you know he cares about authorship for sure but he also cares about the input of others in ways that in some cases architects are less interested in although i i have to give 
our profession credit, we are evolving pretty quickly and not just engaging communities with the work that we're doing, but e even evolving into a model of co-production, which I find incredible, incredibly exciting. But his, his, uh, History is really an interesting one. I mentioned he started out more traditional fine arts. It was a materials transfer facility where they bring recyclables to be processed in Phoenix, Arizona. He was um, commissioned as the artist for this MRF um, just southwest of downtown Phoenix. And so he g goes and checks out their existing facilities, and he asks the design team if he could be part of the planning process and they were looking at each other like I don't know if we want an artist we were thinking we were going to do the sculpture in the lobby and he said um, you know if you actually flip the plan the workers won't be downwind from the recyclables <laughs> the people in the offices they're like oh this guy's pretty practical after all so he's got like he can think in that way but he also can step way back and um, just allow people to think very differently about the, the design process. And I've learned so much from him. We were working on a project called the New England Science Center. It's now called the Ecotarium, not my favorite term. Uh, Edward Durrell Stone was the, um, the uh, architect, the famous mid-century modernist architect of the original building there and we were commissioned this was michael singer studio and blackbird architects where i was working at the time to do additions to the museum and so we're thinking about the additions and here's going to be the theater and here's going to be the new gallery space and he said you know what we should take advantage of the forested landscape within which this building sits um, and we should in maybe instead of adding on to the building we should just build pavilions out in the landscape and create paths that connect these pavilions. And as this institution was evolving from more pure environmental science or more general sciences into uh, environmental sciences, um, it made a lot of sense, like take advantage of this beautiful setting. Um, and also not all of the pavilions have to be climate conditioned. So you just saved a lot of energy and a lot of money. And I think the architects on the team, it just didn't occur to us at first as a possibility, and it ended up being the, the right one. Um, save money, uh, advance the mission of the institution, um, take advantage of this beautiful landscape. And then the other thing I love about working with Michael, you know, I've been, in, it's been instilled in me that you need to have this conceptual strategy that guides all of your decisions. So that's your mechanism to accommodate all this complexity in the design process. And Michael's like, what do you need a concept for? <laughs> what if we made really nice pavilions in the landscape? And what if we made a really nice path that connected those pavilions? Is Would you call that a concept? <laughs> and I just like, wow. So it, I just think it's so helpful to, I think an artist's sensibility, I think is hugely important as we think about the future of the built environment and the future of our profession. Um, one last thing, um, I was interim dean of the school a couple of years back, and I'm going around meeting alums because that's what you do. 
not just in architecture, but in art and landscape architecture. And speaking with all these art grads uh, who worked with architects in the 60s, where there was much more porosity between disciplines, way much more, um, I started to realize, wow, maybe the Department of Architecture's reputation for being a vanguard of the sustainability movement has to do with the fact that it's in a college or a school at the time that has art and has faculty and students in it who are trained to question things and problematize assumptions. Maybe that has value. It's, it, it, we didn't have engineering, so we didn't have that advantage, but we had art. And so I think often the sustainability discourse has to do with the performance metrics, which again, they're really important, but there may be dimensions to it where you just step back and question the problem that's been set before you and you can therefore maybe make greater gains in terms of advancing the, the needs of the client and advancing the quality of the environment simultaneously. The, the conceptual model thing is quite um, an interesting sort of situation where once you've been shaken of or presented with a different path through which you can approach it, do you find yourself still going back to the comfort of the conceptual model? Is it, is it so far ingrained in, in you personally, for instance, that even after being shaken of it, that there's a certain tendency to, to return to it? You're asking wonderful questions. So um, I've been working a lot on water in architecture. I'm going to try to get to to answer your question with some efficiency. But um, I was looking at the 2014 NAB standards, our accrediting body standards for expectations for students graduating from professional schools in the United States and Canada. And they never use the word water once. They use plumbing and they use moisture transfer and they use mechanical systems, but they don't use water. And it's so indicative that it's just this thing that's relegated like we make space somebody else does the water tell me how thick my plum plumb wall needs to be and so i've been working with this really remarkable uh, water consultant ecological designer mad genius named brent bucknam with hyphy design laboratory based in oakland and he does water he projects at the site scale at the landscape scale urban design scale and just to give you an example um he was hired to be the water consultant for a hospital in Escondido, California. And there's this uh, patient uh, surgery wing, which is lower, and then the patient wing where people are recovering, which is a taller wing, and the patients look down upon the roof of the operating wing. And so the client, understandably, wanted a green roof, and the city, understandably, wanted required the use of drought-tolerant natives um, because it's a hot, arid climate. And Brent said, I think you should use, um, I think you should use water-loving plants adapted to brackish or estuarine conditions. And everybody looked at him like, what? And he said, cooling tower blowdown. There's all this cooling tower blowdown water that's brackish, salty, and so if you can use water-loving plants that maximize evapotranspiration, you can reduce the cooling load dramatically 
Um, so I've been teaching these studios in which we actually, to get to your question about the concept, um, where we actually start the project by doing water budgets and schematics and configuring systems and then asking what our, you know, what the experiential and physical architecturally meaningful consequences of that would be. And I have to tell you, it's been amazing to see what unfolds. It's kind of this ongoing experiment. And so Brent came up a couple years ago to create my, critique my students, and we were early on in the process. And we had configured these systems, and we're thinking about gray water and harvesting rainwater and intercepting stormwater and all this stuff. And his comment at the end of all this was like, that's great, but you need narratives to talk about the story of water in your building. Um, and so even somebody who has a more technical background, and he's a remarkable individual, is asking for, a, in a way, a concept or a narr guiding narrative that is the basis for driving architectural meaning. So I guess for me, it, what's happened is then it, instead of we're going to do a concept and then we're going to see it through and all of the decisions are going to be you know, nested within that concept, maybe we start by, and it doesn't have to be water, but maybe we start looking at these kind of systems and these realities and coming up with some uh, ideas about how they might function and out of that driving a, a, a working concept, which can then guide subsequent design activity. So when, in terms of narratives, is he, is he in, in conceptual models, is he referring to, is he thinking of it as a way of framing the building for um, the, the person or persons authoring it? Or is he talking about uh, in terms of its legibility to the public? I think it's legibility. So uh, in this particular studio, there were four teams. I, I only teach studios or whenever I can in teams. I just find it much more rich. The conversations are more interesting. Um, it's, it's just modeling practice and I think a, a better way than each individual student working on their own thing. And there are problems associated with that. Some people don't do as much work and, and so on and so forth, but it usually works out um, pretty well. But so he comes in week two and these different teams have these different ways of thinking about water systems. Um, and, and basically what he was saying is, you know, I don't think stormwater is as significant in your project. It's not like you're going to not deal with it you will have to deal with it if this has any purchase on reality. But this seems to be more about step, stepped cleansing of gray water. And you, the program that you're working with, there's a tremendous amount of gray water. Here's how you treat it. But then, okay, if this is the emphasis, if this is the water story, what does it mean to create an architecture that steps? So not only is that good for oxygenating water and cleaning it and having the proper residence time, etc. But what does it mean to step? What does that mean for light and space making, for circulation and things like that? So um, I think he meant it more like as an instigator of uh, a larger architectural idea where you fold in matters of structure and light and things like that. So again, we usually think about what we relegate water, it's, sec it's marginalized, 
it's not the kind of thing that puts other systems like space or tectonics in any kind of meaningful alignment. But I'm telling you, if you ask students to study hydrology and climate and follow the droplet of water moving from the sky or from the street through your site, um, it's kind of amazing what, what might unfold. And they're, these are uh, vertical studios, right? Exactly. Yeah. Although at, or at, in Portland, the vast majority are at the master's level. Even those, though, I mean, I, I found that there's, um, at least in Oregon, I've seen other institutions where it doesn't function this way, but at least in Oregon, there was a nice balance where it seemed like the, the grad student was able to, both, both parties were able to elevate the other in a, in, a, in a way that the other one was lacking in terms of graduate, undergraduate students and how they interacted. So I could not agree with you more. Absolutely. You know, and, and it was actually, it's been always a subject of great concern during our accreditation when the visiting team looks at the work and tries to comprehend our labyrinthian cur curriculum um, like, why are you putting, and it was also a major concern with the graduate school of the University of Oregon. Like, why are you blending undergrads and, and grads in all these courses? What differentiates the graduate experience? And we'd say, well, you know, our graduates come from film and anthropology and environmental studies and in our, you know, our option one program and don't have any prior experience. But in the studio, you know, you have these undergrads with these who are super talented, very thoughtful. Many of them have crazy media skills, digital media, hand drawing. Um, and then you do have a graduate student who has have a, a more of a wealth of life's experience. And then you put those two together. And I, I, I've seen more good things happen as a function of that, the vertical than, than bad by far. I really like it. What's on the um, trajectory for you um, in terms of research? What's what's next? You said water um, being the obsession for quite some time. I am working on a book project um, with the University of Texas Press, uh, and it's on water and architecture. Um, and I really and it's I hope it's out in twenty twenty one. I have a deadline coming up, and there'll be the production time and all that. I do all of my own illustrations, so it adds a lot to the to how how much time it takes. But I feel it's worth the effort. Um, and it's not just—it's really not a technical manual, although necessarily I have to deal with technical subjects and water chemistry. It's it's complicated, um, but it's more. Uh, an inducement to excite the design imaginary of a next generation of architects to take serious water-related issues, which are just growing in severity. No matter where you go, this place has too much. This place has not near enough. This city has poor quality water. This city has water in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it's just, it's ubiquitous. The, the particularities differ from context to context, but generally speaking, most cities in the world have are trying to confront a, a different reality in terms of um, upgrading infrastructures and and the like. So, uh, architects um, abdicated the role of infrastructure planning to engineers 
in maybe mid mid 20th century um and i i love working with engineers but you can see the results of that you know you it's plug and play you design a building it's plugged in you've got your water i think there's something much more profound at stake and something much more interesting from a design point of view so i'm trying to um just make that case and i loved interacting with uh the, the editor at the University of Texas Press, Robert Devins, who uh, I just – so first of all, they deal with cultural issues, urban issues, um, environmental issues, and the intersection of all three. There's a big focus on the American West. I like the fact that they seem really rigorous but also very unpretentious, um, and so it just feels like a nice fit. Um, but because I'm about to become a dean – I write out of pure fear these days. Is what I say. Yeah. <laughs> how how is that? I mean the the amount of administrative work you're about to take on. Yeah, it's going to change, and I know it because I've done it um, only in an interim capacity. But um, it's going to limit my ability, and I just need to carve out time to um, to do my writing. But it's it's very well. It's very far along. I think I have six of nine chapters that I think are I could send tomorrow. I've got a few more illustrations, but I think I have like 36 out of 44 completed. So um, I, 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 it's so, the project's so important to me because I don't think there's something out there that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen the, the book. I've seen a lot of technical manuals, which are critically important. But I haven't seen one that link, tries to link theory and history with contemporary imperatives and design approaches and, again, some some measure of here's how these systems actually work. Have you found um, in your delving into this subject an earlier era where this was um, discussed in a manner that you're putting forth? It, again, I'll, I'll put this in context. There's this very... Um, I think in when the U.S. highway system first starts getting developed, there are these really intricate plans being developed by state engineers, state planners, local planners, things of this sort. The models they develop uh, react in a very fine-grained manner to the city. Um, they talk about gentrification and displacement, obviously, with different words, but they talk about how um, how to embed this very big infrastructural move um, to support the existing dynamics of the city. Now, something occurs, um, I, I think it has to do with either the Great Depression or, I think it's the Great Depression. So the Great Depression hits, municipalities run out of money, um, and when the sort of war uh, drums begin to beat, I guess, they the there's a essentially a funding model gets switched and there's a gasoline tax introduced which the gasoline tax goes to the federal government i guess and then it goes back down to states but essentially when you shift the funding model for the highway system which i guess was funded through the gasoline tax to a significant degree if i'm remembering correctly um, the authorship of it changes to the federal scale and suddenly when they do that um, these thoughts of multimodal transportation facilities and transportation infrastructure that reacts in a elegant and organic way with the city gets tossed out and you get much more blunt moves that 
cut through cities and and do the things that we we now understand they've done so in your in your own research of the subject of water infrastructure things of this sort um do you find an era in which it was sort of there was a different path being carved out but it got diverted to a different lane there's a wonderful book by david sedlak who's an engineer called water 4.0 i think 1.0 that first era is basically providing water supply to the city and looking at rome and aqueducts and things like that 2.0 is dealing with sewage and the is it the big stink they called it in london in the mid 19th century and having to you know prevent raw sewage from entering waterways and treating it Uh, 3.0 is ensuring a a high quality water supply which is a whole topic that we need to talk about because that that's a there's just some crazy the city of houston 85 percent of the drinking water supply is um is treated treated wastewater um, coming from upstream and there's it's treated but there's contaminants of emerging concern that they're called that are not being regulated like endocrine disruptors in the form of fire retardants and things like that. It's really, really, really scary. But when I think about previous, with respect to water infrastructure, calling from historical examples and thinking about where we need to go, um, I actually look further back to, you know, where you had to work with the basic, reality of the water supply within your basin, um, within your watershed, um, with gravity turns out to be a really predictable thing. (laughs) It's relentless, this gravity thing. Um, and so I think about an island of Malta, for example, in the Mediterranean, the, um, very arid environment. They do have some aquifers, but they have to be really careful about overdrawing them because then you have saltwater intrusion. So in the 16th century, the Knights of the Order of St. John um, required that all new buildings in the city of Valletta had these rainwater harvesting systems that were kind of integral to the architecture. Uh, And that's where I get really excited in thinking about the future um, for a number of reasons. One, Um, kind of thinking about infrastructural investments and the relationship between local and state and federal. Um, It used to be that the federal government would provide grant assistance to communities to build water and wastewater treatment plants and upgrade their distribution networks. Um, And that that money has largely gone away. Um, And so we have this massive infrastructural problem and just think about flint michigan and we it, we and let's connect this one to equity also you know this is this is real um that certain communities are being served and and others are being vastly underserved um so there's this change in resources available and then you have a change in climate so a city like seattle uh, or a city like san francisco the snowpack from the Cascades and the Sierras respectively has declined, not just in the last few years, but over the last 50 by a manner of 50%. And so you have these climates in the American West that have abundant rainfall in the winter and snowfall in the mountains, and you know it's air dry during the summertime. So Seattle and San Francisco d- depend on snowpack from the mountains. It's this crystalline reservoir 
that this slow drip system that makes its way in the spring and in the summer into your reservoir and then you draw it down. Well, if you have a 50% reduction in that snowpack, then you you get that water and you're, you have limited reservoir capacity and you have to let the water out um, because you don't want to overflow the dam, then what, what are you left with? And so c combined with that, I think the city of Seattle, the EPA estimated that they had to spend $2 billion to upgrade its distribution network. And I'm not saying this is the solution across the board because it's not, but I think a term is, that is used as por a portfolio approach to meet, meeting future water demand for urban environments. And so I really do believe urban scale, uh, building scale, dense urban buildings can be part of the solution in terms of rainwater harvesting. And we're starting to, we're starting to see examples of that. Um, and it requires more space, but again, maybe there are spatial architectural opportunities associated with that. Um, the economics you know, drove a lot of the uh, necessity of making more energy uh, uh, efficient buildings. Um, the economics with water have not changed that much, but I, I start to see it changing. And I think it's gonna, there's gonna be a cascade effect, pardon the pun, um, in the future, um, and so I, I, I think it's time to be preparing for that. And again, when you when it's a localized approach, suddenly the design consequences are much greater. And again, I believe architects have a role to play in thinking about what what that's going to look like. Brooke, let me ask um, a craft of research and and writing question for you. So you have a uh, a strange strength of memory um how, how do we get to this so um for myself for instance to get to the the way you're able to uh recollect stuff i had to um so I'll, I'll read something i'll underline or you know draw a line next to what i think is important and then i'll go back in once either when i finish the book or typically that's when it occurs, but sometimes when I've been more uh, productive about it, I'll go back the next morning and then write it into um, a sort of uh, a Zotero, a library program, right? Um, I found that double sort of processing helped me memorize it a bit more. What's what's your, are you just uh, sort of given this um, capacity to memorize or is there a method behind the madness here? I don't think I have any extraordinary capacity. Um, I have, my, and I'm a little bit old school, um, and I read a lot, but I have a six-by-six six sketchbook, and I've got hundreds of them, and when I'm finished with them, I actually put a strip of tape on it on the front and date it. This started in April 1st, 2016, and it finished in... June 16th or whatever it might be. Um, and what I do is when I read, and there are much more efficient ways to do this, um, but when I read, I find a passage that I find particularly striking, and I will write it down in the back. So the front, so from front to end, it's drawings, it's meeting notes, it's things I have to do. And from back to front, it's quotes from... Um, from books that I'm reading, and so I'm looking. I'm looking at 
uh, oh, I, here's this. I'm reading this book of a friend of mine who does water infrastructure projects from around the world with a nonprofit called Mercy Corps. Is sent me a book about Iran by Terence O'Donnell. It's called Garden of the Brave. And on page 25, water, comma, for our Iranians is a material to be worked with as much as steel and concrete are for people in other places, end quote, which I think is just beautiful. Uh, and so I write it down. And so it may be not as efficient because then I have to like t type it in. You know what I mean? So it's probably just horribly inefficient and not recommended. But I find the act of physically writing it as opposed to typing it uh, helps me memorize it. That's just my way. I'm not saying that I'm not uh, advocating for it, but I found it to be a, a time consuming but effective. And do you of, tend to do you tend to switch um, when you're writing and when you're reading? Like for now, now for instance, you say you're. It sounds like you're in the the crunch mode for trying to get as much writing as possible done. Are you also reading simultaneously? Uh, that's a great. It you know there's a there's a, a a wavelength there for sure. It changes right now. I'm more writing than reading. I'm sure you're the same. You've got a pile of books 20 feet high next to your bed or next to your desk. And I just try, I try my best to chip away to, uh, to get, you know, ha whatever I can accomplish. So I have to write every day. And that's, I think, a really big deal um, in order to be productive it doesn't have to be a lot but if you can if you can just preserve a window of time to do that on a daily basis that can really help um, but I also just eat and so the other thing as you know I walk everywhere um, and wish me luck in Charlotte North Carolina I'm actually gonna try to live there without a car and people think I'm crazy but I'm gonna try they have a new light rail but I actually walk read when I walk and so you're walking 4.2 miles with an open book and your notebook with you to, to jot down any notes? No, great question. So I have little stickies and so I'll uh. read and I'll have sticky that and then when I get to work or get back home or when I have a moment, I'll just go back and then write it in. Um, and I'm, you know, I've got like tens of thousands of quotes in these things. I, I'm not kidding. And I just, I, that's how I, I, different people have different ways of mem memorizing things. I, I go to meetings and I take, you know, I'm the dean and I'm supposed to be the one not taking notes and I'm the one taking the most notes just because that's how I remember things. That's how I process things. It's just that act. I don't know what it is, but it's that act that helps me. And what about writing? Uh, do you have a, um, a specific time of day that you write, a specific place that you like to write? Is there is there any consistency of of routine that you have to keep for that? Well, I get up at really early in the morning and I realized when I was in um, architecture school and I was in Howard Davis's studio, the first comprehensive studio he ever taught. And it was getting pressure time in the spring and it just, but it also was like this big social occasion and you'd go into studio at one o'clock and then you maybe go get a bite to eat at six and then come back to studio and work till two in the morning. But it was the seven till two period where I wasn't getting much done. It was just constant interruption. I probably was constantly interrupting others. 
Um, it was fun. Uh, I love the culture. I love the people that I was studying with. We bonded really tightly. But at some point, I realized I'm not. I'm not getting it done, and I have to figure out a way. So I ended up going home at a reasonable hour, like nine, getting up at four in the morning, biking in, starting studio at four thirty, and nobody would show up until at noon. I had the place to myself for seven hours. So I try to get up really early because then nobody's emailing me. You know what I mean? Like I, I can just set aside some time and I have to have some caffeinated beverage, but I'm, I'm ready to, ready to go. And I know some people are night they work at night. I just have to, to, to get up and get, have my uninterrupted time. I also find it to be a beautiful time of day when the, you know, the sun's just about to come out. The birds are chirping. I just, I just find it to be this kind of hopeful time of day. That's uh, my my grandmother's routine as well. Uh, I don't know why she just always woke up super early, drank some coffee. But she had an interesting. Um, she she. It got to a point. I, I assume it happened wherever she, um, would stay. But she ended up knowing what time of day what time of the morning it was based on which birds were starting to chirp and do you cap cap your writing like is there um do you just keep going um as long as you have time or do you there's some authors who specifically say regardless of if they're in the middle of a sentence or if they're uh right in the you know at a sticking point or something like that but they'll stop it at either a word count or a specific time I, I couldn't do that. Like if I was in this sticking point, I, I'm like obsessed with, I got to figure this out. Even if it's like a summary, um, I, there's nothing for me like a plane flight from Charlotte to Portland to have six hours of un uninterrupted writing time. Um, so the more I can get, the better, to be honest with you, it takes me forever to write. I'm not the most efficient writer. I'm a little bit obsessive. I read and reread and reread and edit and edit and edit passages and it takes me time. I do, you know, use outlines. So I like, I like do a rough outline by hand on a piece of paper. And then I've got all these quotes and I've got all these ideas and I try to, even without there being complete sentences, I try to sequence them based on that outline. And then I start to, put the merit narrative together. And then at some point I'm like, that's not flowing right. So I'll actually go back to the, the piece of paper and I'll just try to write that, rewrite that sequence. Now that I know more about what it is that I'm trying to make an argument for. And so it's also this back and forth, uh, digital analog that I, that that's my process. And it's, um, pretty old school, but it, it seems to enable me to, to get, get the work done um after the morning period has passed are you done with writing or if you get a new idea will you jump back into like is the morning time your your sort of productive period and it caps off after a certain period if i can jump back i would i'd love to i start to lose it later at night though and i can't be doing higher level ta i can do lower level tasks but i'm just not that's not my time I, for others that's their that's their time but but not for me. Yeah, I was talking to uh previous to 
to this um, discussion, I was talking to a, a sports uh, columnist, and he he talked about it very similarly. That he he would uh, if he watched uh, uh, an event the night prior, he would typically you know sleep on it, and then the morning would be his writing time. And he said he used to. I think he had some moments where he attempted to write late at night, but it didn't sort of come out great. Um, I, what I found was, and I mentioned this to him too, is the nighttime stuff. I have a, I found there's a greater tendency, at least with me, um, to go down rabbit holes that you think are very productive until you reread it again or until somebody reads it, checks it over, and it is just clearly gibberish. Uh, that you know you've spent like three paragraphs delving into a minute detail that you could just not discuss at all and the the whole thing still stands fine um but for some reason in this late night hour you've thought it was very crucial to define at hyper length this you know minute little word that actually doesn't have much relevance to the broader legibility of anything i i could not agree with you more i I will take notes like late at night or after dinner doing dishes. I'll have this brilliant epiphany and I'll go run to my study and write a bunch of notes down. And in the morning I look at it like that, (laughs) that's the most, that's gibberish or that's the most obvious thing. I don't know why I happen to think it was so original at the time. It's really funny. I just feel refreshed after some sleep and optimistic and, that's in the morning and that's just when i that's again it's go time for me um with the with the new position coming up what's the um are you teaching still will you be teaching as well in the in the fall or is it pure uh upper level you know for year one i think it's gonna have to be upper just which isn't you know i when i have to be honest when i was the interim dean people started treating me differently because I'm the dean, and I just think that's really weird, to be honest with you. And I think of my staff as colleagues. I love my staff here. I'm going to miss them greatly. Um, but for the first year, there's so many members of the community that I have to get to know, you know, to, to kind of do a deep dive in terms of not only the faculty and, and department heads, but also members of the community that have supported the college, alumni and the like. And also the larger institution and the provost office and just how everything works and functions. But down the road, I'd like to um, teach. Absolutely. Uh, I would feel like I lost part of my soul if I didn't have that be part of my life. Um, I'm trying to identify my kindred spirits. There's a woman at UNC Charlotte who teaches, um, Nadia Anderson, I believe her name is, who teaches uh, a class called Ecological Infrastructure, really interested in water-related issues and coastal communities in North Carolina with sea re- level rise and the like. Um, I'd love to find kindred spirits. I doubt I'll have time to teach a studio in its entirety, but if I could find somebody to partner with, um, I think that would be great. i am also um, t- started a class in the fall called, this past fall, basically called Ethical creative practices for the future of the city. Um, And I brought all these speakers and they weren't just architects, they were activists and artists and city officials and the like. And I think something along that 
Minds would be a really cool seminar that would be available to all members of the college. So when I think about dance and music and art and architecture, one thing they all share is practice, you know, in their own distinct modes and ways. And so we're an urban campus and thinking about how our practices are going to involve, evolve relative to the experience of the city and its condition and its challenges and our our opportunity to offer some insight to maybe solve some problems that could not be solved through a different kind of lens. And how do you see the the research and writing? Uh, is Do you see it grinding to a halt for a period of time or do you think you can find the 4.30 a.m. wake up and, and produce kind of pace manageable still? Uh, I think I need to get this book manuscript done <laughs> and that's got to get out and that's really important to me. But the Mosquito Project that I mentioned earlier, um, we're writing grants right now, a British Academy grant, so that would enable these folks in Tanzania and the UK and the US to continue to work together. We had a really extraordinary experience in the fall with this workshop. I ended up going to Tanzania in March. Um, it was a wonderful place to travel. The people were amazing. Landscape was stunning. A lot, of course, a lot of challenges, you know, poverty and um, the percentage of people under 25 is really, it's like 70 plus percent um, population growth and the like. But that mosquito project, I, I think it relates to my environmental concerns, my urban concerns. It connects social scientists, scientists, humanity scholars and designers. So my hope is that I can be uh, highly strategic in continuing to participate in that project and then finding hopefully some simpaticos, some people who would be interested in this work at UNC Charlotte that I can also enlist or support, for, you know, with through grants and other means to um, become involved in the project. Interesting, Brooke. Um, I'd love to talk more, but I think that's good. Thanks again. Sounds good. Sounds good. Have a good evening. Take care. We'll talk soon.